0: This is a Rooster Teeth production. September 27th, 1973. Texas International Airlines Flight 655, a Convair CV600 twin turboprop with 11 people on board, is preparing to depart from El Dorado, Arkansas, bound for Texarkana, Arkansas. There's a line of thunderstorms to their west, so they're trying to figure out a safe way they can get past the storms and on to their destination. At 8 15 p.m., they depart for their 60-mile trip. 35 minutes later, the pilots get lost trying to fly around the storms and are not heard from again. The flight was so off course, it took rescuers three days to find the wreckage. How did these pilots get so lost that they disappeared and couldn't be found? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello. I always feel weird doing the intro by myself, and then it's like, "And Chris is here." <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I want a soundbite of that. I want, I'm going to set that as my text message noise. Anytime you text me from now on, I'm going to—it's going to oh, make no. that noise. <laughs> <She's> <laughs> I gonna love Hate it. me. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get into the episode, as always, I always want to remind you to follow us on social media at BlackBoxDownPod, and also we have some merch. If you want to check it out at store.roosterteeth.com, we got. Some pretty cool shirts, um, stickers, a mug. I just used the mug this morning, drank my coffee before recording this episode. It's very good for coffee. It's a great coffee mug. Go check it out. Give us some support or uh, share the podcast with a friend or with anybody you know. It really does wonders. Best thing you do for a podcast is sharing it with someone you know. So this one, Texas International Airlines Flight 655 was a passenger flight. It actually originated in Memphis, Tennessee, and its final destination was Dallas, Texas but along the way it was going to stop or did stop in pine bluff arkansas el dorado arkansas and then it was supposed to stop in texarkana arkansas before going on to dallas back on september 27th 1973 that's almost uh, what that's uh, almost 48 years ago to the day that we're recording this
1: uh, and how many how many people were in it
0: 11 it was uh, eight passengers the two pilots and a flight attendant it wasn't a big plane it was one of those it was a twin turboprop so it's like the two yeah. propeller planes not a very big plane these Convair CV600s, we haven't talked about these planes before just because they're kind of older. They were made between 1947 and 1954, mm. just to give you kind of a mental picture. It's like kind of what you would see in an old black and white movie when you picture people flying, like uh, that, those <laughs> kinds of planes. Okay. So, it, like I said, slightly older, so it's a smaller plane, not a ton of people. And uh, this particular flight was crewed by Captain Ralph McDonald Crossman, who was 41 years old. And he'd been with the airlines since June of 1959. So he'd been with them for about 14 years. Had 11,800 hours of flight time. First officer was William Fred Tumlinson, who was 37. He'd been with the airlines since October of 1965 and had 7,106 hours of flight time. This particular plane, like I said, was a General Dynamics Convair CV600. It was manufactured in April of 1948. So what is that? It's about 25 years old at this point. It was a twin propeller aircraft, it had a capacity of 44 passengers, but like we said, there were only 11 people on board. The plane had 51,208 hours and 25,913 landings. So this plane was a bit older. I mean, this plane was made right after the end of World War II, and this incident mm. happened in 1973. Yeah. Just throwing that out there for for flavor. So you can try to picture it in your mind, in your mind's eye, what this plane looks like. I'll post a photo of what this plane looks like, you know, on social media. I think that the the Texas International Airlines, uh, I think the way they painted this plane was actually pretty cool. (laughs) It's it's really striking. It's got like the tail is like blue with a white star, kind of like the Texas flag. And then with a a red stripe going through the plane. I think it looks kind of cool.
1: They painted stuff cooler back then.
0: They did. So flight 655 departed Memphis at 6.42 p.m. Central Time. Then, like I said, stopped at Pine Bluff and then it continued on to El Dorado. And Pine Bluff and El Dorado, you've probably never heard of these cities or these airports no. before, I assume. These are pretty small airports. There's no tower at them. So that's why they're flying kind of a small plane doing these, you know, this run. At 7.51 p.m., the crew contacted the El Dorado Flight Service Station and requested airport advisory. So the Flight Service Station, it's an air traffic facility that provides information and services to pilots before, during, and after flights. But unlike air traffic control, they're not responsible for giving instructions to pilots. So it's like a step down from air traffic control. They're just like information. Like It's like the pilot's calling 411. God, people don't even do that anymore. <laughs> it's, it's like the, the, the pilot's, you know, looking stuff up, you know, just getting general information. Googling, God, like <laughs> Googling, yeah. But, you know, yeah, I guess Googling, you know, just looking up information, but not they're not being given any instructions. Yeah, they're like doing a little re- the library research on the go. <laughs> yeah. So the controller at the flight service station advised the crew about information for the airport which were, you know, clouds were broken at 25,000 feet, seven miles of visibility, temperature of 78 degrees, dew point of 75 degrees, calm wind, uh, an altimeter setting of 30.05. So the controller then advised Flight 655 that there were two pilots in the service station who had been briefed on the weather toward the west, and they could probably supply them with additional weather information. So the flight service station's like, hey, you know, if you want to go talk to those guys, they might have more information. (laughs) It's really, really weird to think about, right? It's like there's no official information. It's like, hey, go talk to those guys. They heard from someone else, like kind of a telephone game for what's yeah. going on. Yeah, information used to suck. Right. Yeah, we kind of take a lot of stuff for granted now, <laughs> the internet and everything's so readily available. <laughs> it's like 1973, you're dealing with a totally different world. So the pilots for Flight 655 requested to meet with those two other pilots and talk to them when, you know, when they arrived. And you know, they find out there's a line of thunderstorms in the west around Texarkana. And the crew for Flight 655 aren't quite sure how they're going to get around this. You know, they want to because that's where they're going. They're they're flying in that direction. Flight 655 landed at El Dorado at 7:53 p.m., and the crew talked with the pilots and used the Converse weather radar to examine the weather echoes to the west. The crew commented on what appeared to be a 15-mile-wide break in the line of echoes about 35 miles west-northwest of the airport. And just for reference, Texarkana is only about 60 nautical miles northwest of El Dorado. So. This is supposed to be a pretty quick flight. Yeah, that's, I mean, they could have driven it. Yeah, they could have, yeah. But these people might have been coming I mean, from further back. They might have come from another airport further east. They might have come from Memphis and are yeah. just like hopping on their way there. Or they might even be on their way onto Dallas and just stopping at Texarkana mm-hmm. on the way. I liken these, these kinds of flights, especially back then, in my mind, I think of a lot more of like a bus trip where you got to stop a couple times before you get to your final destination. Like, this is going in the direction Mm. you need, and you're going to stop a few times, and then it will eventually get where you're going.
1: I guess it's weird to think about, but was that more common back then, in the 70s?
0: Yeah, I want to—so, I don't know about in this time frame specifically, but previously, yeah, that would have been more common. Eventually, the industry got to more the model we're used to today, which is more like the hub and spoke system— where Mm -hmm. you fly to a hub airport and then, you know, you'll fly on to your final destination if there's not a nonstop to kind of like cut down on unnecessary stops and cut down on travel time. But anyway, so like we said, that boils down to the fact that this is a short flight, 60 miles. uh, It's only 60 miles away. The crew of Flight 655 did not report any aircraft discrepancies to the Texas International Station agent, nor did they inform him of their intended route to Texarkana. They then departed El Dorado at 8.15 p.m., uh, and just for reference, like I said, this is uh, late September, 8.15 p.m. The sun's down. It's dark by this time of day. So, the, you know, this, they're flying mm-hmm. at night. So, like I said, they departed at 8.15 p.m. The captain did not activate the computer-stored IFR flight plan and did not file a flight plan. As they taxied to the runway, the crew contacted the flight service station and stated that they would be proceeding to Texarkana under VFR. So, you know, I used the, the terms VFR and IFR there just as a refresher for you and for the audience. Uh, VFR stands for visual flight rules, and it basically means that under good weather conditions, you can fly around and not have to talk to air traffic control unless you're within certain controlled airspaces. IFR is instrument flight rules, and when you fly under IFR, the pilots are relying on their instruments and the help of air traffic control to get them to their destination. They must file a flight plan, and they must be in contact with air traffic control at all times. So ifr is what we normally think of when we fly on passenger planes like there's a flight plan they're talking to the tower the whole time you know there's lots of communication vfr is more like yeah we're just going to go up and fly around and when we see the place we're going to land huh
1: yeah that that's a i don't like that <laughs> that's a, i don't even like doing that when i
0: drive like in my car i don't like well I'll look around for it <laughs> yeah i'm going to give you a spoiler chris this incident is the reason that passenger flights are no longer allowed to fly VFR. <laughs> this is not allowed anymore. It's crazy <laughs> to me that this was an option for them back then, that, that they were just like, yeah, we're just going to fly around. We'll get there. It's bonkers to me that an airline would have been allowed to fly this way. So after takeoff, the flight flew a magnetic heading of 290 degrees and climbed to an altitude of 1,500 feet. The flight operated between altitudes of 1,500 and 3,000 feet until 8.49 p.m. So these are low altitudes. And again, this is a short flight. So from this time on, for after 8.49 p.m., they stayed within the range of about 2,025 feet and 2,200 feet. So, you know, really, really low altitudes. How can I put this into reference? So for reference, the tallest building in downtown Austin, this only applies to you, Chris, because you live here in Austin with me. The tallest uh-huh. building in downtown Austin is about 1,300 feet. So they're flying between 2,000 and 2,200 feet. So they're not flying much higher than the tallest building in downtown Austin.
1: Yeah, and normally, don't they, like big commercial
0: planes, they fly at like 40,000 feet? Yeah, they they fly between 35 and 40,000 feet, yeah. But remember, this is an older plane. Like we talked recently about Pan Am 7, remember? And they they were flying (laughs) at 10,000 feet. Yeah, okay. But still, that's real low. Still, this is really low. It's kind of... Kind of wild to me. But
1: I guess they're only going like 60 miles, so... Right.
0: Again, they're not going very far, so it doesn't... It seems <laughs> shocking to see such a low number, but then you're like, yeah, but it's an old plane, and they're not going very far. Maybe that's okay. I don't know. It just seems really low. These are just really low numbers. I, I just wanted to re-emphasize yeah. that so the audience knows. Like, by modern standards, this is unusual. Yeah. Up until 8.46 p.m., the aircraft flew various headings in a general northwest direction uh, and then turned towards the west. At 8.51, they then turned to a heading of 240 degrees. The report notes that when they made their turn to the west, they were about 100 nautical miles north of the direct course between the two airports. So they really flew out of their way trying to get around this weather and um, navigate to Texarkana. Yeah. Yeah, they're just kind of way off. Again, they're on visual flight rules, so they're just kind of flying around.
1: Like, oh, it looks messy over there. We'll go this right.
0: way. Right, and like using the radar to scan the weather. Like, yeah, you know, we're kind of kind of heading in that direction. And, you know, once we get close, then we'll figure it out, <laughs> I guess. The cockpit voice recorder indicated that the crew did not attempt to contact ground facilities after takeoff from El Dorado. The cockpit voice recorder also indicated that the first officer was the one flying the aircraft and the captain was giving heading and altitude orders to him. The crew was attempting to circumnavigate and penetrate the weather while trying to remain under VFR. So just like we said, they're kind of like trying to fly around the weather using visual flight rules. As the flight progressed, the first officer expressed concern about the flight's position relative to the elevation of the terrain. Uh, at this time, the cockpit voice recorder and a flight data recorder showed the flight operated in instrument meteorological conditions, which is referred to as IMC. Uh, and the aircraft's radar scope depicted ground returns and precipitation echoes. So they're watching the radar, you know, looking at their instruments and they can see like precipitation and they can see the ground on it as well. At around eight forty PM, the first officer stated, "I sure wish I knew where we were." Oh, yeah, yeah right. You don't. You, I've got things you don't <laughs> want to hear from the cockpit. <laughs> A few minutes later, he stated, "Painting ridges and everything else, boss. And I'm not familiar with the terrain." Seeing so, you know, what he's saying about painting ridges and everything else, like the radar showing us the ground and like the the terrain, and he's like, "I sure wish I knew what was down there." Because again. It's nighttime. It's dark. They can't see. They're like in the the middle of nowhere in Arkansas. It's not like they're flying over an illuminated city.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: At around 8.49 p.m., the captain ordered a descent to 2,000 feet. The first officer replied with, Man, I wish I knew where we were so we'd have some idea of the general terrain around this place. (laughs) Right. Again, more things you don't want to hear. The captain told the first officer that the highest point in this area was 1,200 feet, and they were not near that point. The captain had flown this route nine times during September, and all of those flights were with this first officer. So these guys, you know, the captain felt confident, like he knew this area, he knew this first officer, like this should be fine. A couple of minutes later, the first officer mentioned they were about to pass over the page Vortec. Six seconds later, the captain said that the heading of Texarkana was 180 degrees, but the first officer said it was 152 degrees. So they're disagreeing about what direction Texarkana is from where they are. And actually, the first officer uh-huh. was the one who was correct. They they should have headed 152 to get to Texarkana. Because at this point, they were now about 80 nautical miles northwest of the Texarkana airport. So they passed it. Because like oh. I said, El Dorado is only 60 nautical miles southeast. So they went those 60 miles and then another 80. So they, they went way past Texarkana. So, you know, they flew a really roundabout, far distance up and around to get through those thunderstorms. 14 seconds later at 8:52 and 17 seconds the first officer said minimum on route altitude here is 4400 and then it cut out because the airplane crashed oh no as he spoke yeah as he's mid sentence you know like i said they're flying at 2000 feet and he's like wait a minute the minimum altitude here is 4400 but he gets cut off before he can oh, even finish it oh no right it's like he's they real like a- he's like they hit a mountain oh my god and they didn't. They, they, right, they had no idea. They 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 didn't know where they were. And they didn't even see it because it was too dark. It was too dark. Yeah, they hit the northern slope of Black Fork Mountain at an elevation of two thousand twenty-five feet, which is six hundred feet below the top of the ridge. And the, of course, the aircraft was destroyed, and everyone on board was killed. So, like, they weren't. They were six hundred feet below the top of the ridge. They 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 slammed into the middle uh, of this ridge uh, the Black Fork Mountain. Because, like I said, they were flying VFR and they couldn't see, so they didn't know. You know, by the time they realized they were below minimum altitude, that's when they're, you know, crashing into the the mountain. So, yeah, I mean, I could hear you reacting when I was saying some of those things about what a a bad situation it was. Yeah. So, I mean, this, (laughs) you can already tell before you even get to conclusions or anything else, this is why passenger planes are not allowed to fly VFR. (laughs) This should never have happened. Uh Uh-huh. It's 2021, which means there are so many new ways to diversify your portfolio. You got stocks, you got bonds, you got mutual funds, maybe even some Dogecoin you bought as a joke. But what about private real estate? Studies have shown that portfolios that include private real estate generally deliver a better risk-adjusted return with more annual income and lower volatility. With Fundrise, now you can get into investing in private real estate because they provide access to all investors on an easy-to-use platform. Whether you're looking to add stable cash flow or long-term growth... Fundrise makes investing in private real estate as easy as investing in stocks, bonds, or mutual funds. Fundrise's team of real estate professionals carefully vets and actively manages their real estate projects. You can check your portfolio performance and watch as properties across the country are acquired, improved, and operated via dynamic asset updates. So see for yourself how 150,000 investors have built a better portfolio with private real estate. It takes just a few minutes to get started. Go to fundrise.com/blackbox today. That's f u n d r i s e.com. Slash, black box down, slash black box down. How great would it be to find new recipes without having to track down every single ingredient and reduce food waste all at the same time? And yeah, I'm talking about something that really exists in reality. You could actually do it. It's the reality with HelloFresh. HelloFresh sends fresh pre-portioned ingredients for quick recipes directly to your door. They offer 50 weekly recipes in a range of flavors, cuisines, and pre-portioned ingredients. So it's an easy way to try new things without committing to owning an entire bottle of something you're not even sure if you like. HelloFresh reduces your food waste by 25% because you're only getting what you need and you're never overbuying. Plus, HelloFresh packaging is made almost entirely from recyclable or already recycled material, and they offset 100% of carbon emissions, making their carbon footprint 25% lower than buying groceries at the store. I've talked about it many times. It's so great to just be able to sit down be like, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to follow these steps. It's easy to follow. Uh, I'll make something that tastes great. And then when it's done, I get to eat this project. It's like a real quick project. You feel good that you're done. And then when you're done, you're like, man, I'm hungry. And then you get to eat it. It's awesome. It's a win, 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 win. So go to HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown14. Use code BlackBoxDown14 for up to 14 free meals, including free shipping. That's up to 14 free meals, including free shipping. HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown14 with code BlackBoxDown14. Clearly, you've got great taste in podcasts. You're obviously a fan of high-quality, fascinating shows hosted by interesting people. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. So go check out The Jordan Harbinger Show, too. There's something for everyone between weekly interviews, heavy-hitting guests, tons of interesting topics, like how a professional art forger made millions of dollars while being hunted by the feds and the mafia. There's also an episode with Ulrich Larson, who's a man from Denmark who spent 10 years undercover in North Korea, infiltrating uh, the illicit arms trade there. What a crazy story, right? Uh, and of course, <laughs> there's also Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, who I'm sure you're familiar with. Who you want to hear uh, him talk about some of his background? It's all super interesting. Jordan Harbinger Show covers a lot, but Jordan is always able to pull nuggets of advice from his guests. Every episode has something useful you can apply to your own life, from actionable routine changes to slight mindset tweaks. I really enjoy the show. I think you will as well. There's just so much here, so check out jordanharbinger.com/start. For some episode recommendations, or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. So the NTSB carried out the investigation, and after examining the wreckage, flight data recorder, and cockpit voice recorder, uh, it became clear what happened here. Uh, The Mm -hmm. NTSB looked into the company procedures and found some regulations regarding thunderstorms. The flight operations manual specifies procedures to be followed when turbulence, thunderstorms, and hail are forecasted or encountered. The manual states the captain should attempt to avoid areas of turbulence when possible. While a certain amount of flying must of necessity be conducted in turbulent air, the effects may often be minimized by careful selection of flight path. Pilots should avoid flying in or near thunderstorms unless unavoidable, flying at low altitudes over mountain ridges or adjacent to the lee side of mountains during windy conditions. And the lee side is like the side that's shielded from the winds. And using a route where turbulence is probable when a better alternative route is available. So it's all common sense stuff. Mm. Uh, The manual goes on to say that thunderstorms are probably the most dangerous situation the airline faces at this time. Uh, Extreme caution shall be exercised in the control and operations of flights when thunderstorms are observed, reported, or forecasted. The manual emphasized the need to keep up to date on the weather by using radar plots, maps, pilot reports, and all other available means. The manual also states that when there's a solid line of thunderstorms, like what they encountered on this night, it is best to wait on the ground for the line to pass or dissipate. Oh, So, I mean, the manual even says they they probably should have waited. I think they were eager probably to get their flight done, and they saw a little gap in the storm, so they probably thought they could go for it. The NTSB also found that the company's operations specifications authorized the airlines to operate its prop jet flights according to visual flight rules, Uh, again, VFR. But the NTSB also found that an IFR flight plan would have had the flight operating at 4,500 feet in the area of the crash. Because guess what? When you file a flight plan, yeah. it takes this stuff into account. And it tells you <laughs> what, what altitudes you're supposed to be at, what the minimums are, so that you avoid that.
1: Yeah. They didn't even look into what the altitudes, the minimum altitudes were in advance. They were just like...
0: Well, because they probably didn't know exactly where they were going. Because they were trying to like figure out oh, and find yeah. a way around the it, thunderstorms. Yes, there was no clear path that they were going to take that they knew ahead of time. But realistically, when you're flying like this, you know, you should be looking at your charts the whole time to make sure you're above minimum altitudes. But I think, again, this is speculation on my part. Like I said, the captain had flown this nine times in, you know, September. He probably thought he knew where he was and knew the area. But like we said, well, he, he, didn't, he didn't He didn't know, know the where he, he was wrong. Right. He was off because it was dark and he didn't know where he was. He just got overconfident. I don't even know how they found mountain. I mean, because I'm from the Texas, Canada. Is, it's in West Texas, right? Well, it's on the border, uh, east, northeast Texas, like Texas Arkansas border.
1: Sorry, did I say west? I meant east. Yeah, it's like yeah, you said It's near where I grew up, and I was like, I don't even think there. Were,
0: I don't know of many mountains in that area. Uh, yeah. Well, they found one. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I hate I hate to make a joke about that, but man, they yeah. they found it. So. The report also notes Federal Aviation Regulation 121.533, which gives the pilot-in-command and the aircraft dispatcher joint responsibility for pre-flight planning, delay, and dispatch release of the flight. The dispatcher is required to follow the progress of each flight, issue necessary information for the safety of the flight, and cancel or redispatch a flight if, in his opinion or in the opinion of the pilot-in-command, the flight cannot operate or continue to operate safely as planned or released. So kind of, it's like... Dividing the responsibility between the dispatcher and the pilot. Uh The regulation states that during the flight, each pilot in command is in command of the aircraft and crew and is responsible for the safety of the passengers, crew members, cargo, and airplane. The crew of Flight 655 did not contact the company agent either on the ground or after departing El Dorado. In addition, the captain did not inform the company agent that he had decided to proceed to Texarkana VFR rather than activate the IFR flight plan. Also, he did not inform the company agent that he planned to deviate from the direct flight track between El Dorado and Texarkana. Uh, The crew had previously operated VFR from Memphis and Pine Bluff without notifying company agents. Failure to report these deviations violated both company and FAA regulations. The dispatcher did not attempt to ascertain the status of Flight 655 from El Dorado until it was 23 minutes overdue at Texarkana. What was the name of that mountain? Uh, Black Fork. And then, like, to the point... That uh, like I was saying earlier, they were so off course, and you know that no one realized where they were, and the rescuers couldn't find the wreckage until three days after the crash. And you know because they were flying VFR and they hadn't told anyone what they were doing, no one even knew anything had happened until they they were late at Texarkana. You know they were 23 minutes late, uh-huh. and so I was like, oh, something's not right. You know we we yeah. start looking for them. It's it's just insane to me the way that we fly today and the way we operate airports that this even happened. So, the NTSB also notes that there were seven Vortex and five radio beacons available to flight 655 along its route from Dorado to the crash site. And we've talked about this before. Like, these are navigation beacons that they can use to figure out where they are. Mm-hmm. The area in which the accident occurred was under the jurisdiction of Fort Worth Area Control, and radar service was available upon request. When examining the wreckage, the NTSB found that the only VOR frequency selected was the one at Texarkana. The page tac was about 13 and a half miles west of the accident site and has a code identification followed by a voice identification and warning that says the elevation is 2,700 feet. The warning had been transmitting for about a year and was functioning properly the night of the accident. So they weren't even tuning into any VOR frequencies along the way that could have told them, one, where they were, and two, what their minimum elevation was. Why Why wouldn't they? I don't Because they were flying VFR. They just weren't... I mean, you're right. They should have been doing this stuff, but... They were just, I mean, what, what's, they were just winging it. I mean, it, it sounds uh. weird to say. But yeah, that they, were, they were just kind of like flying around. They thought they knew what they were doing, where they were. So I'm going to go over the findings here. The crew was trained, qualified, and certified according to regulations. Aircraft was certified, equipped, and maintained according to regulations. There was no in-flight failure or malfunction of the structure, power plant systems, or other aircraft components. Post-mortem examination of crew members revealed no evidence of physiological conditions that would have affected their performance. The crew possessed both current and forecasted weather information before they departed El Dorado. The captain did not inform the dispatcher of his intentions to deviate from the flight plan nor coordinate the deviations with him. The dispatcher did not monitor the conduct of the flight. Flight 655 deviated about 100 nautical miles north of the direct course of its destination. Flight 655 operated VFR into instrument meteorological conditions without an IFR clearance. The crew members did not use all available navigational equipment and aids to determine their position and select a safe flight altitude. The captain, without adequate knowledge of the terrain, directed the flight to descend to an altitude which was below terrain elevation. There was no evidence that the captain was concerned about his position or track over the ground. The accident occurred while the aircraft was flying straight and level under cruise power. The crew was not aware of the impending impact with the terrain. I could summarize this all by saying there was nothing wrong with the pilots. There was nothing wrong with the plane. There was nothing wrong with any of the navigational beacons. They just, I don't know, they just ignored all the tools that they had available to them. Yeah. And flew straight into the side of this uh, Black Fork Mountain. So the NTSB determines that the probable cause of this accident was the captain's attempt to operate the flight under visual flight rules in night instrument meteorological conditions without using all the navigational aids and information available to him and his deviation from the pre-planned route without adequate position information. The carrier did not monitor and control adequately the actions of the flight crew or the progress of the flight. So again, like we keep saying, absolutely no reason for this to happen. Yeah. So we got the recommendations here. At the time of the final report was published, the NTSB was still considering possible recommendations and said when they were approved, they would be published separately. Uh, The only document that our producer Dennis could find was one that was directed to the FAA on October 8th, 1974. Because again, this is, you know, a little older now. Things were done differently yeah. back then. It's a, the information isn't as thorough as it is nowadays. So big shout out to to our producer, Dennis, for finding all the information on this one. It's a, it's a <laughs> lot more to dig through to, to pull up information on this. But this is a very important incident because, like I said earlier, flights are no longer allowed to fly VFR when they have passengers on board. They have to fly IFR and have flight plans. Anyway... Just what the NTSB wrote. Other investigations have revealed intentional descents below minimum descent altitude and unprofessionalism during which the basics and safe operating practices were totally disregarded. Yet the records of the pilots involved show that they conducted themselves properly when being observed by Czech airmen or FAA air carrier inspectors. To determine what motivates a pilot to disregard prescribed operating procedures is difficult. Therefore, a solution to the problem is not readily apparent. Usually, human error has been reduced through increased training, standardization, and restrictive regulations. History has proved that neither increased flight checks nor new regulations alone will improve safety, nor will these actions ensure professional performance. Yet professionalism is fundamental to safe operations in civil aviation. The high standard of professionalism possessed by most pilots must be instilled in all pilots. Professional standards committees should be able to assist substantially in this regard. Accordingly, the NTSB recommends that the FAA initiate a movement among pilot associations to form new professional standards committees to degenerate old ones. These committees should monitor their ranks for any unprofessional performance, alert those pilots who exhibit unprofessionalism to its dangers, and try by example and constructive criticism of performance required to instill in them high standards of the pilot group, strengthen the co-pilot's sense of responsibility in adhering to prescribed procedures and safe practices, circulate the pertinent information contained in accident reports to pilots through professional publications so that members can learn from the experience of others. A lot of these that they're kind of saying here kind of circle and go back to CRM, which is something that we've talked about before, mm-hmm. crew resource management, you know, specifically talking about strengthening the co-pilot sense of responsibility. Like that's kind of saying like the co-pilot needs to speak up or needs to have the authority to speak up if they see that something's not going right. Yeah. Uh, anyway, they have another one here. Develop an air carrier pilot program similar to the general aviation accident prevention program that will emphasize the dangers of unprofessional performance in all phases of flight. The program could be presented in a seminar using audiovisual teaching aids to call the pilot's attention to all facets of the problem. So just really, I think they're really digging into this unprofessional attitude and trying to find ways to make sure that pilots don't fall back into that kind of thinking and that they maintain professionalism and adhere to all the standards and procedures that they have. Because, again, that's kind of the whole crux of our podcast is these standards and procedures (laughs) exist for safety. Like, the industry has learned, you know, unfortunately, through blood, you know, that's how these standards evolve. And that's how we learn. It's like, let's not repeat these same incidents. Let's avoid things that are avoidable.
1: Yeah. I mean, this just seems like a a case of... um overconfidence or or Mm
0: -hmm. arrogance. Yeah. Unprofessionalism, I think, as the NTSB might say uh, in their report here. So like I said, in the years following this accident, the FAA would require that all airlines operate only on instrument flight plans when passengers are carried. I can't believe we got all the way to 1973 with with this uh, and having to have this incident for that to become a rule. This seems like this should have been a rule way before people had to die. This was actually the only fatal accident for Texas International Airlines. Uh, eventually, the airline was merged with Continental in 1982, and the last Texas International aircraft were seen in 1983. But like I said, if you follow us on social media, I'll post a photo. You can see what Texas International Airlines planes did look like if you give us a follow on uh, on social media at blackboxdownpod. But that's it. I know this is kind of a, a shorter episode for us because it was it was very, very much cut and dry. But nonetheless, a very important incident that changed aviation and that we all are a lot safer for today yeah one more thing before we go i do want to remind everyone uh if you could do us a favor i think i mentioned this maybe in our last episode uh we have a survey down in the description uh for this episode of the podcast uh we just want to learn a little bit about the people who listen to our podcast uh if you could fill it out just takes like two minutes i think it's real fast it would really do us a, a big help just so we better understand who you guys are, how you listen to the podcast and what we could be doing better to try to reach you guys and, you know, provide uh, the kind of content you're looking for. Make it easier for you to consume it. <laughs> yeah, oh, man. Well, yeah. And don't forget, speaking of which, we also have a YouTube channel. If you listen to podcasts on YouTube or, you know, you want to there, there's, there's really no further visual information. It's just really the audio. But if that's your thing and you, you want to get a podcast on YouTube, we have a YouTube channel as well. You might want to go check that out.
1: Yeah. We make other content besides Black Box Down,
0: so there's lots of other stuff on YouTube under Rooster yes. <laughs> So yes, there's there's lots of stuff that that we do produce. God, well, this just this is just like our plug portion of the podcast. We also make Chris and I also <laughs> are on a, a Dungeons and Dragons podcast called Tales from the Stinky Dragon. If you'd like to to check that out, uh, you don't have, you don't need to know anything about Dungeons and Dragons. It's just kind of like comedy improv in a fantasy setting. But everyone's just kind of having fun playing around. Yeah, no lessons learned by blood. (laughs) No, no, it's it's all it's all fun (laughs) games there. But thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back again next week with another episode of uh, Black Box Down. I almost said Tales from the Stinky Dragon, (laughs) but this is Black Box (laughs) Down. (laughs) All right, bye.